Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Regulations, laws, policies, technologies, they all shape the way we live in our cities and the way we interact with each other and the planetary systems that we're immersed in. But the way we govern ourselves is supremely outdated and analogue compared to what it could be. Our next guest, Indy Johar from Dark Matter Labs in London, is part of a 60-person team that is seeking to change this, change the way we think, create more equitable, caring and regenerative futures. Indy is delivering a keynote address tonight called Wild Hope as part of RMIT's Now or Never Festival. And Indy, it's really great to have you in at Triple R. Welcome. Good morning. Really honoured to be here. Good morning. And, and this morning we're going to ask people to think differently and and hear what you're saying. How do you prepare people for the kind of conversation we're about to have where we're going to kind of mind bend, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, weirdly enough, I mean, when I'm having these sort of conversations, I think in, intuitively people feel this stuff. And I think lots of the conversations are actually giving words to feelings that people have. And, you know, the reality is we've been, so even ourselves as human beings, right, the reality is our brain is a social function. It's not just in my head. It's a function of my relationships. We know that our intelligence is a function of the friendships we keep and the relationships we keep. We know in terms of microbiomes, we exchange microbiomes with ourselves. We know our gut changes our intelligence, our frames of thinking. We know epigenetics, our context, massively transforms us. So when you start to imagine even us as humans as entangled realities to the world around us, I think that we all intuitively feel this stuff. We perhaps haven't been described it that way. So I'm more and more, I think, the kind of, I think we see and feel a different world around us. But I think, do we have the words and the frameworks to give it kind of color and a way to understand it? That's, I think, a lot of the work that, that, that this is about. Yeah, and I was sort of thinking about your work and the, the sense these days that the systems that we have in place don't really necessarily seem up to the job of, of addressing things like climate change. You know, we saw through the pandemic a real challenge with different governments, um, you know, sort of struggling to uh, mitigate the, the problems faced with, within particular areas around the world. So in what ways has kind of our ways of thinking and, and the governmental systems we've developed over time prevented us from sort of properly addressing the ways that we are interconnected planetarily? I think that's. I think this is kind of. If I was to situate it, I would say this is the big issue. That in a way, the crises that we face are no longer national; they're actually genuinely planetary. Whether it was COVID, or whether it's climate change, whether it's biodiversity losses, whether it's actually the kind of impacts of the kind of foods that we eat and the soil erosion that we're driving, or actually the deforestation done by the kind of meat, meats that we consume, right? So we are, have, we are increasingly having planetary relationships, yet our theory of governance of how we govern ourselves and the way we organize ourselves isn't able to deal with these planetary implications. So I think this is the big crisis. We've already transcended, in a way, the kind of governance frameworks, industrial governance frameworks, to operate in a complex planetary entangled world we don't have the means to organize into it. And we, we and that's really the heart of the twenty first century challenge. And I think it's rooted in recognizing climate change is a symptom. 
symptom of the problem, right? Because what we're doing is we're vastly externalizing CO2 or microplastics, and those externalities are now feedbacking into us, feedbacking either into the food systems with microplastics or they're feedbacking the CO2 impacts and the weather, weather de degradation that we're seeing. So we just haven't got to terms with that. We've become genuinely a planetary species. If you, any one of us was to stand up and say, you know, where does my cotton come from? Where did my food come from? Where did the nitrogen come from? Or sort of potassium come from for my food? Where did actually my microchips come from? We're already a planetary species, but we haven't yet found the ways and the means to govern in a planetary sense. And I think that's a really, that's the paradigm leaf. And people like James Lovelock elegantly talk about actually how in Novocene, I think it's a very beautiful book. And the first third of it, he eloquently says that we are, we've become, the planet is becoming conscious. You know, the fact that we can even recognize that climate change is going on, you can see it. Obviously, this is a big disaster. But also the fact we can know it's happening is an act of us, the planet, becoming self-conscious. And that's an extraordinary moment. So I think, yes, and I think we're living in this pivot moment between actually us as individuals to being planetarily entangled. And, you know, the science of this stuff has been going on for a while, whether it's actually in the 1970s, people like David Bohm, a uh, quantum physicist, was talking about kind of entanglements. And, the, you know, and we're talking about our entanglements in material ways. And we know whether it's sort of dust from the Amazon, which feeds uh, dust from the Sahara, which feeds the Amazon in terms of nutrients. We know we're planetarily entangled. I just don't think we've recognized how to operationalize and live as a planetary species right now. Um, and that's a kind of transformation that we're in the middle of. And I, I mean, I was thinking of this idea of being self-conscious and I think we all know what that feels like to go back to your to earliest point in this conversation is that we know it in our bodies what that feels like. And for some people it can be paralyzing feeling and for others it can be really energetic. But this idea that we're going to consciously change where we perhaps didn't consciously arrive where we are, what's the sort of process of empowering people to make that con conscious change or transformation that, that we, we probably need right now? So, I mean, history is really useful in this sense, right? So let's give two examples. The Industrial Revolution in the UK. Before the Industrial Revolution, there was an educational revolution. And if you look at the growth of democracy, and I mean genuine democracy, it's always been paralleled by actually education and human development. In the Nordics, which were one of the poorest countries in the world, you know, in the eight, 19th century, they were one of the poorest countries. I mean, literally the poorest countries in the world. Actually, one of the biggest reforms they did was they built Volk schools, people schools. And those people schools, 10% of the population in the 19th century went to those Volk schools. And they were taught philosophy and technology, like polytechnics, new technologies and philosophy. Because what they were trying to build was people who could author their own lives, who could not only do make things but also actually understand and under author their own lives by actually being able to think we are in the age of philosopher makers you know often like in the culture that we build it's like just do it and i think we're in the age where you have to be able to philosophize and make simultaneously and that's a kind of capability that we have to invest in that's why i think this is a transformation not just of new technologies of carbon sequestration or you know new ways of sort of pulling carbon out of the air it's also a human developmental transformation and that's what we're going to have to invest in and the other kind of critical thing i'd say is this is one of those few transformations that's going to require us to do it at a planetary scale right historically the planet has been full of multiple civilizations. 
increasingly we're one entangled civilization. So we're going to have to move all of us forward in a way that we've never had to do for before. And, you know, to be a little dark in the morning, I think the choice that we face is mutually assured thriving at the planetary scale or mutually assured destruction. Right, it's it's that sort of fork. It's a fork in reality, rather than it being a spectrum, and that I think is an extraordinary invitation to all of us to imagine a different way for all of us to grow. And that's an extraordinary moment. And we've expended, you know, you could argue, what was it coal, hydrocarbons? These took hundreds of millions of years to build, and they were stores of energy that have allowed civilization to come to this moment where we can actually then transcend into a next next generation civilization. And that civilization is, I think, at the precipice. We're at the precipice of those things because we're having even these conversations. That's extraordinary, right? Yeah. For us to be able to have these conversations. We're speaking with Indy Johar, founder of Dark Matter Labs, London-based architect and, and thinker, and um, speaking ahead of a, a keynote he's delivering tonight as part of Now or Never Festival and also announcing a, a partnership with RMIT as well. And, I mean, I'm kind of captivated by the, the name of the organisation that, that you had, Dark Matter Labs, because dark matter is something that's invisible, but a substance that has, you know, huge impact, I suppose, in, in existence itself and I'm kind of interested in, in how you think through implementing thinking planetarily in, in ways that can bring sort of productive benefits and, and the role of the local in that as well. I mean are there things we can do on a day-to-day level within our communities that actually tie in with some of these much sort of larger themes? So uh, so I'll sort of go to firstly why we started with the term dark matter. I think you know, we were part of building stuff like WikiHouse, open source housing, or OpenDesk, open source furniture company, which actually decentralized production of furniture. What we started to realize was the things that we built were, so you could build, you could, you could, we built WikiHouse where you could 3D print your own house, you know, routing it, uh, uh, routing uh, plywood and build it. But actually the real question was land. And the real question was, how do you borrow money against uh, a self-built house? How do you build the warranties infrastructure? And we, what we started to realize, the problems of the physical world that we see are rooted in theories of property. What is property? Who has the right to destroy soil? Or even more, more if you go deeper into the problem space, we live in a world of nouns, objects. Whereas if you look at indigenous languages like the Anishwabi language, they operate in a, in a language of verbs. They see the world like they see the mountain as something that is flowing. It is not stuck. It's not an object. But when you see the world through a language of verbs, you start to see a different form of relationship rather than seeing it as object orientated. And since I would argue that since sort of the uh, Enlightenment, what we've built is a worldview of objects. And that was what, what it was, objectification. We separated ourselves, perspective distance everything that separation allowed for us to see things in isolation however it discounted all the relationships between things and i think what we're seeing is a transformation of seeing the world not just through object but seeing the world through relationships and that is being facilitated by you know that needs us to look at new languages but also new theories of of bureaucracy how we how we relate stuff how we also how we how we understand these relationships in different formats reimagining stuff like property rights reimagining contracts reimagining monetary formation so what we've built is a worldview and a stack of invisible technologies technologies of bureaucracy which construct a classification theory how do we classify things we know in history classification theory permitted a theory of violence right so race as an idea as we were is an illusion it's just an it was an illusion constructed largely to permit a theory of violence 
right? It, it, there's no genetic basis to the race conversations that we have, genuinely, right? It's a construct of classification that allowed for violence. So when we start to re-entangle these things and we challenge the dominant ways of structuring the world around us, the dark matter, we're going to have to reimagine these things as much as reimagine the physical world. And I think, so the dark matter for us was that you can keep arguing about changing the physical world around us, but you have to start to reimagine all those institutional infrastructures and recognize our entanglements in a deep sense, our relationship with trees. You know, our, our language is a language of dead things, right? Assets. But now, if you were to take a different worldview, you would explore things not as assets but maybe as agents a tree is a living thing right but trees aren't even considered assets they're considered liabilities they cost money in terms of maintenance in terms of actually um a sort of insurance costs a street tree typically so i think what we, you know the big conversation for for us was that we could keep arguing about physical transformation but it was rooted in how we'd structured both at a language level and a bureaucratic level and all these structures around us and that's why dark matter as a name came about um, and for us that was a kind of an important I, framework of actually being able to see the world and operationalize the world differently mm. yeah that's very fascinating that's fascinating i mean what where do you see then the role of government because you know some of of uh, what you said there comes to you know we've got regulation we've got things that set up the way our cities operate there's there's rules there there's agreed norms so to speak and and things like that but w- what about the role in government in the transformation that you you're, you're you're saying and many people are saying we actually need to have absolutely and governments have a massive role and i think one of the big challenges right now for government is you know and not just government i, I would say most of our institutional infrastructure whether it's governments or corporations are governing through a theory of control control right so we tell you what you can and you can't do in a complex world when you don't know what is even good or bad right you can't predict it how do you govern not through a theory of control but through a theory of learning and care and increasingly one of the big challenges for governments is in a complex emergent world, how do we create the architectures of governance? And I think increasingly what we're going to see is government governments having to build new theories of governance which are not around control but actually around learning, around actual kind of different forms of accountability and different frameworks of governing. So governments are going to play a critical role. And a macro level, I think one of the big questions that governments are going to face is recognizing that, and this is, I think, something that we all feel, is that the reality is we're now currently living at war. We're living at war with future generations. We're living at war with the planet. We're living at war even with people around us. And I think what governments are going to have to recognize is that we're going to have to move to a great peace. And negotiating a planetary peace is probably the greatest transformation that we're going to have to make. And without it, I don't see a way for many of us to survive. What about the UN in that? You know, Because that sort of came out of actual war in the sense of people Absolutely. understand we have that uh, body that is you know trying to help grapple with the the climate crisis etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean what about what they're doing yeah, absolutely and i think so the un is going to play a critical role i think what makes this moment different is that i think in a way governments are only one actors So democracy has massively distributed agency. And we still think of government as the apex of a society. And I don't think governments are the apex of society. They are just one actor in society. So what we've got is the, you know, government sort of Australia, you could argue, is a multitude of actors. 
a multitude of which governments are one part, but there's also all of us, and we all have our sovereignty. Sovereignty is no longer constructed through the prime minister or the king. Sovereignty is a multitude of sovereignty. It's an emergent function. And what that means is I think we're going to have to start to think about a great peace, not just through the delegation of the prime minister, but actually as a kind of idea built in society and has to be grown from society upwards and in relationship to to the world around us. I mean, I'm obviously uh, British, but... You know, so I I would argue that one of the big challenges for the UK, for example, is not perceiving the UK as a red line boundary around the British Isles or around the British Isles, parts of the British Isles. It's about recognizing the UK is is a is a network of flows, right? We're dependent on Kenya for food. We're dependent on lots of parts of the world for food. So if you imagine ourselves as as being in relationship with the world, you imagine your theory of sovereignty and and responsibility in a different way. And I think this is the sort of kind of transformation that we're in the middle of all the way from understanding ourselves as multitudes understanding a kind of new theory of governance which is based on learning and continuous evolution and theories of care and you know and the learning part isn't isn't a side story that's how we manage nuclear power plants we don't manage nuclear power plants through control we manage them through a continuous rapid learning mechanism which has also got public registries radical transparency so you can do complex technical things and govern them in a completely different way and i think that's going to be a key part of the story uh in part of the transformation so i think we're on a big arc a big transformational arc and i mean you, you talked a bit about sovereignty there and i mean i know you've only recently arrived in australia but you I'm, I'm sure you're aware we're approaching a referendum sometime in the next couple of months on an indigenous voice to parliament which presents kind of opportunity to reflect on the sort of status as a nation these questions of, of sovereignty and particularly first nation sovereignty and and sort of imagining a, a kind of future going forward for the country as well and i'm kind of thinking about how these ideas around interdependency and interconnectedness, there seem to be really strong parallels with Indigenous knowledge systems, certainly in Australia where there's tens of thousands of, of years of, of people living on these lands in very different ways that we're accustomed to as kind of, you know, white settlers, speaking from my perspective today. You've just kind of uh, are launching a new partnership with RMIT. How do you kind of think about those sorts of ideas and, and in relation to the work that you're doing and your engagement with, with Australia? Totally. And uh, so, so one thing I'd say is that what we see is two... So let's say the Crown and the Indigenous, we see it as two different things. I would argue that actually we're seeing things move to a similar singularity. So I would argue that quantum thinking and quantum modernity, with the, if you want to use that language, is moving to a, the same worldview as Indigenous thinking because what it's focusing on is a relational worldview. And what we're starting to see is recognizing our entanglements is no longer is is is, is these aren't two worldviews they're actually merging, and I think that's the extraordinary proposition is not to see these in opposition with each other, and I think that's where Australia has a unique opportunity to actually be the kind of leader of a new way of an emergence of a new way of being in the world, and it's genuinely new because it's going to operate in a both at a planetary level it's a completely different theory of governance, and yes it will be it will rhyme with the past, but it also rhymes with the with the future in really radical formats so when we when we talk about uh, the nation of trees or trees having life it's also cars having life right so self-sovereignty of cars so if this is an emergence of a of a new which deeply rhymes with the past and i think we shouldn't see these in oppositions with each other but genuinely an emergence of a hybridity of a new pop 
proposition, which I think Australia is uniquely placed, like Canada as well, is uniquely placed because it has to deal with the kind of it can it can use both heritages to build something brand new and extraordinary at the centre of it. You know, thinking uh, the idea that we are in already, uh, you know, a, a future that is interconnected emergencies, you know, and, and concerns, I guess. What about AI and pandemics and antibiotic resistance and these sorts of things? Do you think it's sort of disasters or emergencies or crises that motivates us to be actors, use our agency to, to do something? I mean, if we weren't facing these things, would we drift, do you think? Uh, I, I, th- I, th- I think there's a there's a there's an aspect of reacting to a crisis in complexity that is allowing us to evolve and if I was to be it's pretty unfortunate we're already seeing what's going on around the world I think we're going to be living through a series of crises the the question is do those crises weaken us and actually dismantle us which is also possible right so civilizations unfold or do we use this crises to actually transcend ourselves and that's the conversation I think we're trying to have here is this these crises are an opportunity to actually transcend and to become stronger and become different and evolve or these crises will make us more fragile more vulnerable more in um, at war with each other and that's the invitational challenge how do we deal with these crises some of these crises are already baked in right and so we're gonna have to transform ourselves to be able to deal with them the one thing i'd say is these are not the it's not about dealing with the symptoms. It's about dealing with the root causes. And that is a one in a 400-year transformation. It's a sort of a deep co-transformation, the things that we take for granted. The private limited company was is an idea. It was born 300 years ago, right? How we conceive it. All of these things are, are in we're being invited to transform. That's why this generation, all of us, have a deep responsibility to think deeply into the transformation that we have to be in. What does a constitution of Australia look like in the 21st century? Is it a constitution or is it constituting? Is it ever going to be fixed? Like, I think it's an invitation to deeply reimagine. What does it mean to be a nation in the 21st century recognizing our entanglements, both in history but also in geographies and ecosystems? Um, what, would ham- what would it mean if we said the population of Australia was three billion life forms, not just the humans. How do we reimagine our custodianship in a much broader way? That is a sort of imagination that's really critical um, and an invitation to that. And, and your keynote tonight is called Wild Hope. So are you going to sort of be talking about that sort of optimism you have in dealing with these issues through reframing the way that we think about them? Absolutely. I mean, look, I'm, to quote Jurassic Park in a bit early in the morning, <laughs> but, you know, life, uh, life wants to live. And I think we have an invitation to live. And it's an invitation to live extraordinarily at a planetary scale. That's an, we are living in extraordinary moments. And I think that invitation is, that's why I have hope. I think we can do this. We've done this in history. In history, we have, as, as human species, have evolved. And this is a moment that we're going to evolve into a beautiful planetary civilization. And that's an invitation to all of us. It's been great to have you on Triple I, Indy Johar from Dark Matter Labs uh, and keynoting, not giving a keynote, um, keynoting tonight as a part of um, the RMIT Now or Never Festival. It's called Wild Hope and you can still get tickets, I think, and just head online. It's very easy to find Now or Never Festival, Wild Hope and uh, Indy, it's great to have you in Australia and great to have you on Triple R. Thank you. Likewise. Real pleasure and thank you for having this sort of conversation. Genuinely appreciate it. Triple R.
One of the many great things about the fanfare surrounding the Matildas has been the normalisation of same-sex relationships, something we've also seen in the AFLW. When it comes to men's football, though, it's a very different story. We're still yet to see a current or former male AFL player publicly come out as gay or bisexual, and this raises questions about whether the league has done enough to address homophobia across the competition. The ABC's Four Corners is taking a look at this issue tonight, and ahead of that, investigative journalist Louise Miller joins us on the line. Hello, Louise. Thanks for being there. Hi. Thanks for having me. Our absolute pleasure. And, I mean, this is an issue that it feels like has been kind of discussed and has been bubbling away for some time. What led you to report on it now? I've been thinking about it for years and I, I really wanted to explore it because I think it's culturally fascinating and also sort of quite strange, really, in today's society. Um, and I always assumed, to be honest, that the story would sort of happen without me, but um, but it hasn't. And, I mean, it's interesting because Jason Ball, who was the amateur footballer who came out back in 2012 via a Change.org to stop homophobic slurs on the football field, um, you know, he thought the floodgates would open back then. And, you know, that's 11 years ago, and they just didn't open. This, the silence, as you know, as we call the program, continues in, in this code. And, I mean, I already saw it on social media responses to you promoting this episode, Louise, that people are saying, well, why are we putting it on the, the players themselves to, to come out and be the first? No, and, of course not. And, and, of course, that's not... I was going to say, but how are you grappling with that sort of knee-jerk, yeah. I guess, to having a look at this issue that um, people want to see us take a nuanced and, and really a, a really understanding approach to this? How have you sort of gone about I, that? I think it's a bit of a cop-out to... To, to respond to it in that way because that's not at all what we've done. We didn't go, you know, gay hunting as well while we were doing this program. We wanted to have an adult conversation about this, about, a, you know, a difficult conversation because difficult conversations make change. And um, it, it, it's about, as I think you said before, you know, creating a safe space because if you think about it, AFL footballers are public figures um they the straight players go to the brownlow medal with their girlfriends i mean it's not that long ago they had that revolving rotisserie stage where the girlfriends were showing off their um frocks you know and the girlfriends have like careers as influencers on the back of the fact that you know they're having a relationship with an afl footballer um the the straight players are on instagram with their partners etc etc um the play the gay players feel that they can't do that. Now, Gillan McLaughlin, um, the CEO of the AFL, said back in April that there were players in clubs, and we know that there are, um, but they choose not to sort of come out. And he said, I can understand that because it, it would be a burden to for them to come out. And the gay players that we've spoken to have said that was a really missed opportunity because what he should have said is... Um, you know, if this is not a safe space, you you tell us how it's not and how we can make it better. And one of the things that has been really compelling in other sports is the idea of a pride round. The research shows that it can reduce homophobic language by up to 40%. The AFL has a pride match between the Saints and the Swans, but it still doesn't have a pride round. They have one in the AFLW where there are dozens and dozens of women who are out as lesbian and four players have come out as non-binary. 
um, but they don't have it in the competition where there's no one. And, and they're not even no one present, but no one past. You know, it's, and it's really interesting that, you know, it, it's not to say that the AFL's not doing anything, but the research shows, like there was a Vic Health study back in 2020 which showed that the AFL was sort of way down the list, like certainly not in the top five when it came to engaging in anti-homophobia campaigns. And that's despite the fact that it's the richest of the codes, you know, 900-odd billion uh, million dollars in revenue last year. And, I mean, when you started asking questions about this, Louise, about sort of why they haven't been, the AFL that is, been willing to, to really lead on this issue, I mean, was there an openness to talking about it or, or did you face resistance? We did face some resistance, or more defensiveness and sensitivity. So back in 2000, the Australian Sports Commission, the Australian Government, put out um, what's known as a compliance warning to all sports, saying you have a problem with homophobic discrimination, you need to do something about it because you're breaking the law and you're risking costly litigation. And they set out really granular, detailed guidelines about what they could do to... to, um, to address this and it wasn't just like motherhood statements it was like set up a complaints process have a complaints officer keep a record of complaints engage in this education program you know etc 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 two years later your lovely colleague richard watts um who is you know a journalist and 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 also you know was a gay activist at the time um checked with all the AFL clubs and head office to see what progress had been made in those two years in terms of implementing these guidelines. And not only had they not done it, they didn't even know about it. Like, they weren't aware of it at all. So we then decided at Four Corners to do a bit of a data collection, which we often do with our stories. It's an uncontroversial thing we do in order to sort of, like, build our understanding. Um, And so we sent out similar questions to to what Richard had um, back in 2002. And what was most interesting about it is the The picture in terms of the clubs is kind of patchy. Some have done much more than others. The AFL does have a complaints process itself. But but what was more interesting was the defensiveness because they just went into meltdown, really, some of them. I mean, I had one... AFL PR on the phone to me from one club saying that she'd had four other PRs on the phone. What are you going to do about these questions from Four Corners? And then, you know, one club banned us from filming on the premises from that time forward. Another, Another said that they couldn't tell us for privacy reasons. I mean, the whole point about complaints mechanisms is that the complainant needs to know where to go and what the processes are. It's not a private process. And the government told sports that all the way back in 2000 when it made this quite progressive sort of, um, you know, initiative. So and, and another AFL um, executive, a very high-profile one, said that our questions were aggressive. They weren't aggressive at all. They were just, like, really straightforward. So, you know, this shows the defensiveness. Like, people would often say to me, oh, this is really sensitive, Louise. And I was sort of like, well, in the rest of mainstream Australia, it's not such a sensitive topic 
um, to talk about being gay. You know, we have marriage equality. Mm. Um, and, you know, again, this is the only sporting code in the world where this is the case. And if it is a safe space, then why is there no one who... Feel, who is out like it feels like you can't have those two things together yeah that's the implication isn't it and I think that um you know it's it's normalized to be queer in women's football and totally. and it's can long considered a safe space for LGBTI and TIQ plus community it started in a safe space and yeah. and I think that's you know, the huge, such a difference. And I mean, I was one reporting uh, around the the World Women's World Cup where uh, a queer fan said, "This feels like a vision for the future, where not only mm. is queer sexuality not an issue, but it's openly talked about and celebrated." And I thought, mm. we're in just such a different place. And I mean, did you get mm. a sense in your interactions with clubs that they want to be in that? place or that they're learning from the women's game because the AFL has one? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting. We spoke to AFLW players and and one of them, Izzy Huntington from GWS, said that while her part of, you know, why the AFLW is a safe and beautiful space, because of the toxic attitudes of AFL men's fans, they bleed into the women's space and they deal with this really appalling homophobic and misogynistic trolling. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of people, like, they want it to be better. They want to, to, to let... Um, to let gay players know that they're going to be okay, but they don't quite know how to have the conversation. Having said that, there are some absolutely heartwarming, beautiful moments in the film, and I think so many people will be inspired, not just by the gay players that we speak to, but also by the lovely allies in the game, like Bob Murphy, for instance, who was at the Western Bulldogs and is now um, working at Fremantle. He just talks about how much he's going to wrap his arms around, you know, the first player that that he works with. And um, it, it's really lovely to see because it's such a great game, you know. It, it, it creates so much positivity um, and... Um, we um, we want to show that, um, and and by having this difficult conversation, hopefully to make positive change. Yeah, we're speaking with Louise Milligan, reporter with the ABC, and all about um, her report as part of today's for uh, tonight's Four Corners episode on homosexuality and the AFL. And I do want to ask. I mean, I, I was sort of thinking. Oh, sorry, guys. I'm sorry to to do this to you, but I have to jump onto you another have to go. interview. <laughs> okay. That, I'm so sorry, dear listeners. I could talk all day about this. So but, yeah. we, it's a busy day for you, Louise. We're going to be yeah. watching tonight. Um, best of luck with it. Congratulations on the report and hope to chat again. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Australia is lagging behind when it comes to paying musicians a fair price for their work and this is even more so for sessional musicians who do not get ongoing payments for their contributions to sometimes hundreds of songs and albums over their careers and that keeps them working hand to mouth. There are louder calls for this um, inequity to be addressed and Dr Rod Davies from Monash University is one of those people that have been watching this issue for a long time and it's really great to have you on Triple R. Good morning, Rod. 
Yeah, good morning. Now, I mean, the lack of proper payment for musicians has a long history, but it's coming to the fore again because of a private member's bill from ACT Senator David Pocock. What kinds of legislative discussions are happening at the moment when it comes to paying our musicians, or is it, unfortunately, is the case not paying them properly? Well, the issue that um, Senator Pocock's uh, addressing is an issue which is in the Copyright Act and goes back to the the actual formation of the Copyright Act in 1968, um, and, and where a cap was put on the amount of money that r- radio would have to pay for um, to play music, and um, and so because prior to that they didn't pay anything at all, and and basically they would pay the songwriters but not the performers um, because they argued that. Radio was exposure, and um, but then you know the world sort of uh, started to address the issue of um, you know secondary companies like radio stations getting making a living and getting their value out of musicians' work and having and getting them to pay for it. Um, but this cap was put on because basically to protect um, regional radio, um, and it was a political decision, very much a political decision. And it sat there like that for nearly 50 years, and um, and there's been many uh, attempts to change it, But um, and this is the latest one. Um, it, it, is, it is something that we need to look at, but, uh, but as I argue in, um, in, my, uh, in my writing and research, uh, there, there, there's a number of other things we need to address as well. And, I mean, how viable is it to use radio players as a primary means of compensating artists? I mean, obviously, you know, we're broadcasting with a radio station and radio remains very popular, but, of course, people access music via a variety of different channels these days as well. Is this still a primary way that we should be looking to, to sort of properly compensate artists for their work? Um, no, what you say is absolutely right. You know, radio has... has well, the, the, the landscape has definitely changed, you know, with streaming coming in. But um, I think that it's, it's still the basis of how we actually remunerate artists around the world, and that's the issue, is that Australia is not in line with the rest of the world. So whatever decisions we make going forward we're still behind the rest of the pack. And, and so, so really what we need to do is to get on the same page so that when decisions are made in the future, as they will be, about new models and new systems for remunerating artists, that we're in line with, with what everybody else is, is doing. Because if we're not, we, are, we will end up where we are right now, which is isolated, not being able to get money that is due to our artists from overseas and not remunerating artists in our own country. And I've read your writing, so I get what you're saying there, but what is it that we're out of step with or out of line with, uh, with Rod? So, so basically what happens when, when a radio station pays a licence to, to, uh, to play music, the, um, what happens in most other countries is that that licence is divided between the record label uh, and, the, and the, all the performers. So that the featured performers, which would be the artist or the band, and the non-featured performers, which are these session musicians that um, come into play on those records. And sometimes they're session musicians who play iconic solos or iconic parts um, and um, and everywhere else in the world there is a distribution of money to those session musicians in Australia we don't offer that at all um, we don't even offer uh, uh, remuneration to overseas featured performers which is the reason why the UK no uh, turned off the tap in 2013 and no longer pays Australians Australian musicians so so basically what it is it, it's a, it's an acknowledgement that there is a that the we need to pay uh, all performance
reformers that they, that they're uh, they're due what is basically a statutory right to, to a remuneration, and um, and then we fall in line so that we can start to uh, uh, do those reciprocal arrangements freely with uh, with other territories around the world. And the big territories, such as the UK, and, uh, where we can actually earn, and Europe, where we can earn quite a bit of money. And, I mean, you're a session musician yourself as well as an academic at Monash University, and you were one of a number of people quoted in a recent Age article on this issue. Another person is Pete Luscombe, who I'm sure would be well-known to triple R audiences, played um, you know with the likes of Paul Kelly and, and so many others over the years as well. Can you just sort of paint a picture for us of what... What that means for a session musician, like the fact that they're not generally remunerated for the work that they do in the way that they might be if they were based somewhere else? Yeah, so if so, for example, the way that it works um, in a, say in Australia. So um, uh, yeah, so I started in the '90s. Pete started probably ten years before me in in the session music scene. So you accumulate a lot of sort of you know work over that time and playing on different records. And it's always been uh, that you would just get a, a session fee for playing on the record. And the session fees have been going backwards ever since I started in the '90s. So for example, in the 90s, we might have got you know five hundred to a thousand dollars a track for um, in in 1995, and now we're getting three hundred to five hundred dollars a track. You know, 30 years later, um, so there's there's that point as well. You do get a you do get a session fee, but that is for the actual recording. That's the mm. performance being actually fixed. What happens after that is that recording can then be, as I say, uh, commercialised or exploited by secondary. Um, uh, businesses like radio stations. Now, they when they pay licences, they should be paying licences to all of the creators on that record, which includes the session musicians. In Europe, thirty-five uh, percent of the of the licence fee goes to the non-featured performers, and in Australia, uh, sorry, thirty-five percent of the performers' fee goes to the non-featured performers, and sixty-five to the featured. And in Australia, it's zero. It's re- it really is when you put it like that. It's just remarkable that that's the case because these days we couldn't even say it's an administrative cost or a technology problem. Where oh, how on earth are we supposed to split thirty five percent of two dollars to this many people? <laughs> but you actually could. I mean, we've got computers and and so forth, and we do register who plays on records. People know who the musician was involved, so there isn't those sorts of barriers that perhaps might have been there in in a back in the day when you had to write it on pieces of paper or something like that. So what is the blocks there for cultural legislative, that sort of thing, is that what's holding us back to actually amend people getting fair, fair pay for their, for their music and their talent? Yeah, well, look, the, fir- the first thing is the acknowledgement that we need to, um, re- you know, honour all of our musicians and, and, and their intellectual property. And that actually is um, embedded in um, the, uh, a, a worldwide treaty on the intellectual property, which um, most of the co- uh, countries of the world um, go by, but Australia actually um, have reserved, um, in other words, they have rejected um, that part of that treaty uh, and have not signed up to it. And so the first thing is to say, okay, we, we will go with the rest of the world on this, that 
um, session musicians or all, all performers have a right to equitable remuneration for their work and then we need to look at a statutory um, response to that in the Copyright Act. And after that, all of, all of a sudden, we've, we're on the same page as everybody else. We're respecting our uh, musicians the same way they are respected elsewhere in the world and, and we can start to play with the market, you know, a worldwide market that will hopefully uh, help our, our, our musicians to, to be more, have a more stable um, uh, way of making money, so, which, which sustains them through those troughs and peaks and also through horrible things like um, COVID-19 uh, lockdowns, which, uh, which decimated so many livelihoods. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, so we've got this private members bill from, from David Pocock and um, Labor's National Conference over the past week as well, where there have been advocates calling for change on this issue. How hopeful are you that we still, we, we will start to see, uh, you know, proper remuneration for session musicians in particular as part of policy change in this area? Yeah, I, I, th I think we're not far away from it, to be honest. Um, I'm really hopeful that uh, Senator Pocock's bill will actually trigger a parliamentary inquiry, which will just bring out these things into the um, into the parliament and also the, 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 the interests, the particular interests that are sort of holding us back from um, simply playing uh, on the same field as the rest of the world. And if that can happen, really, it's not a big step to simply introduce uh, a statutory... Um, amendment to the Copyright Act, which will give performers the same rights that they have elsewhere in the world. And I mean, just addressing that that bigger concern that I know that you uh, have written about and, and worry about, um, Rod, which is that Australians don't value the work of musicians, full stop. And I mean, will that start to address that or change that in the culture, do you think? Yeah, well, I think that's the big picture. That's that's the um, probably the you know the, the the moral outcome of this, which is that we can actually acknowledge that we are holding our musicians back, that we don't value them the same way they are valued elsewhere in the world. If we can say to them, "No, we do," and this is the steps that we're going to take, or these are the steps we're going to take, then that will actually say quite a lot, not only to our musicians but also to the culture that we have in Australia, which which it really says that um, musicians are, you know, looks at musicians as being, well, they're, they're a little bit sort of non-essential. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, they're, they're a bit, they're hobbyists. Um, they, you know, they're, they're lucky if they can make it, make it in Australia because Australia doesn't have a very big market. All of the reasons why they're kind of held back... Oh, and is because of phones well, dying. We were just about to solve that issue, and <laughs> we now he's just gone. <laughs> now he's gone. We we're yeah, ready to. to Sorry, have musicians, I'll have to wait for another day. Another episode of the Grapevine to um, <laughs> to, to carve out your futures in this country. Um, no, Rod Davis, there is um, a lecturer at Monash University, talking there about calls for session musicians in particular to be properly compensated for their work. Um, I wasn't actually aware that Australia stands out as a real laggard in this regard internationally, where people who play on records aren't paid for it. Um, I recently got $3 from APRA recently for, you know, my life's work. So that was, um, yeah, gonna, not going to spend it too quickly. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.